As Pastor Mike has said, I'm Alan Finley, your church planting resident, and it is such a joy to be back with you today. Well, here in Kansas City, we are known as quite a sports city, right? You know, we've got some incredible teams. Uh, I grew up here in Kansas City, and, you know, we've been through some better seasons than others, you might say. But I, I have a something I've come to recognize in time, and if you happen to bring tomatoes with you, I ask that you hold them in your seat. Please don't throw any in this, this statement, but sports fans can be kind of weird, can't they? I mean, it's not every day you, you hear someone on the street talking about this, this win that they accomplished that they had absolutely nothing to do with, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, you'll hear someone after the game, and they'll be like, oh, man, did you see how we did? We were incredible. And I'm like, you were just sitting on the recliner, dude. <laughs> you didn't do that much. You know, we, we can be kind of weird. Uh, I'm, I'm not a huge sports fan. I love to watch it, but I just kind of step back and admire the people at times, you know, especially when they're, they're watching the game on the TV, and, man, they're in it. And they start yelling at the, the coaches and the players and the refs, telling them whatever they should do. And I'm like, I know, you know, your phone and Alexa is always listening, but I, I don't think those sportsmen and women are. But anyways, uh, we can be kind of weird at times. But let's, let's take that thought for just a second, that we get so caught up in this idea that it's our win and let's look at that through the, the spiritual lens here. You know, just like the, the games, in reality, you and I, we didn't contribute anything at all. As we think of that through, through the spiritual lens, you know, at times, you and I are tempted to think the same way about our salvation. Now, we probably wouldn't put it in words this way, but something inside us begins to believe that salvation is ours that it's our win, like it's something we have achieved. And when we begin to think that way, we start to act like we have more merit or more worth than those who are still in their sin. And by doing so, we, we separate ourselves. We, we create this us versus them mentality. In our text today, we're going to see Paul address this temptation to value ourselves more highly than we ought, especially in relation to others. And we see him point both our attention and our affections in the proper direction. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, we're going to begin in verse 25 today. And as you're turning there, I just want to share a little bit of the, the context, the background of what's happening here in Rome. You know, initially, this body, this church in Rome, it was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. They were coming together, worshiping under the same roof, uh, all just celebrating what Christ has done in their lives. And Emperor Claudius, he, he came in and made a mandate that kicked out all of the Jews from Rome. So all of a sudden, this church that was once made up of both Jews and Gentiles is suddenly 100% Gentiles, non-Jewish people. 
And in this time, the church began to shift. It began to, to find different ways of expressing itself. You know, initially they honored all of the, the Jewish holidays and Jewish dietary code. And, and now the Gentiles, many of them began to question, why do we do that? But after five years, Emperor Claudius died, and a new emperor came on the scene, and the mandate was lifted, and slowly the Jewish brothers and sisters began to trickle back in, but they found the church that they once knew and loved looked completely different than how they once found it. Now imagine with me that you went away for college your first semester, and over Christmas break, you came back home to find that your parents had given your room to a foreign exchange student. You know, what was your room now has different posters on the wall. The furniture has been rearranged. There are different clothes in the closet. And there would be some, some feeling of uneasiness, right? There was a lot of tension in this church in Rome. And there, there may have been feelings of superiority on both sides. The, the Jewish believers, they were the originals, right? So they probably felt like they were better than these Gentiles who came in. And all the firstborn children said amen, right? <laughs> uh, the, the Gentiles, on the other hand, they had been living ministry. They had been carrying on this church for five years through all the hardships, through all the frustrations. They had come into leadership positions. They had been serving in the city. They had been sharing the gospel and baptizing the new believers. So they may have felt like they were better. They were stronger. They had been faithful through the trials. Can you understand the tension that may have existed in this church. Now, in, in our text today, Paul is speaking to the church as a whole, but particularly to the Gentiles, telling them, much like that message to sports fans earlier, that none of them has anything to brag about. Paul is telling them to take their eyes off of themselves and to focus on the incredible God that we serve. So this morning, we're going to see three ways that God's glory is magnified through his mystery, through his mercy, and through his majesty. And each of these, they're like different lenses that they help us see God in a variety of ways. It's similar to a, a microscope, a magnifying glass, and a telescope. Each of them, we use a lens, but we use them in a different way to see things in a broader perspective. So first today, as we begin in verses 25 through 27, we're going to pull out our microscope. And as we do so, imagine with me that you're looking at a strand of DNA under an electron microscope. We are examining something that has always been around us, but we haven't always been aware of it. So let's read this text today. Romans 11, verses 25 through 27 at first. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. 
He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As we look at this text, we'll see that God's glory is magnified through his mystery. Now, Paul began with this phrase, lest you be wise in your own sight. You know, it's important for us to remember that wisdom isn't about building ourselves up. It's about bringing our minds, followed closely by our actions and our words, into alignment with God's wisdom. So to help the Gentiles in Rome do that, Paul draws their attention to this thing that he calls mystery. It's sort of like he's adjusting the focus on that microscope to show the Gentiles that there's much more going on than they initially realized. He says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, I'll just be honest with you. This this text can be really difficult to understand. In fact, I think this is one of those passages that Peter is referencing in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, where he says that there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. And he says, many, the ignorant and unstable, they twist them to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, you and I, we, we may not understand how or why God hardens and softens the hearts of men and women. But in making the Gentiles aware of this mystery, Paul helps them lean on and trust the Lord's wisdom, which is far above our own. So what is this mystery that he speaks of? And how does it magnify God's glory? Well, first, I think we should let Scripture speak for itself here. The mystery is clearly unpacked in a few different places in Paul's letter to the Colossians. In uh, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and again in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul reveals that the mystery is Christ in us. Jesus is the mystery. Now, Jesus is the long-awaited Savior. If you recall our Suffering Servant series leading up to Easter, we saw through Isaiah's prophecy, which was written 700 years before Jesus was born, how Jesus was the promised Messiah. And we see small glimpses of him throughout all the Old Testament. In fact, all of Scripture points to Jesus. He is the one promised in Genesis 3.15 who will crush the head of the serpent. We, we see the, the place of healing where the, the bronze snake is lifted high over the people of Israel in the desert so that they can look upon the serpent and be healed. Uh, in 2 Samuel 7, David is promised that his kingdom will last forever. And Jesus is the reigning heir to that throne. Jesus is the mystery. And when we pull out the microscope and we examine the hundreds of promises all throughout the Old Testament that are fulfilled by Jesus, it should cause us to worship. Do you recall in Luke 24, after Jesus is resurrected, he is walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in verse 27, it says, 
that Jesus walked these two disciples through the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can't you just see that? Like, Jesus is going through the scroll like, that's about me. That's about me. Oh, that was an incredible day. Let me tell you about that. Just over and over and over again, he's showing them that all scripture points to himself. Now, when we recognize that, when we understand that God's plan to send Jesus willingly to take our place and die the death that we deserved... And when we understand that it wasn't a backup plan, it wasn't plan B or C, but it was his plan from the very beginning, we should have this incredible understanding of his love for us. So as you and I, we pull out our microscopes and we examine this mystery, we will see God's glory magnified as he shows his faithfulness to his promises And on top of that, he reveals his desire for all nations to be brought in to a relationship with him. Again, we may not understand the how or the why of him hardening some at one time or another, but we see that it is for the purpose of bringing more into his fold. He's opened the gates wide so that one day we can see the fulfillment of Revelation 7 where he says a a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues are standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Again, much like those strands of DNA, they've always been there. But we haven't always been aware of of them. We haven't always been aware of his details of these plans of salvation. But they've always been there. And now that we can see it with more clarity, we can better glorify him. Next, we're going to pull out the the magnifying glass. Many of us wear different types of glasses. And, you know, they're just really magnifying glasses designed to help our eyes focus and to see more clearly, right? A few years ago, a friend of mine from high school shared a video on Facebook of her son getting his first pair of glasses. And he was about 18 months old at the time, and it, it was incredible. Uh, the doctor placed the, the glasses over his eyes, and immediately as they covered his eyes, he, he saw his mom clearly for the first time. And in that moment, he started bouncing and his, his smile just spread all the way across his face. And the doctor adjusted the lenses and he's like, no, bring it back. I want more. I, I want to see my mom. As you and I see clearly what God has done for us, it should inspire that same reaction inside of our souls. I want to see him more clearly. I, I've seen a glimpse and I, I want more. So as we pull out this magnifying glass today, we're going to see that God's glory is magnified in his mercy. Let's read in Romans 11, 28 through 32. As regards the gospel, 
They are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Now remember the context. These two groups, the Gentiles and the Israelites, at odds, in tension with one another. To this day, most of ethnic Israel still rejects Jesus as the Messiah. But here at the church in Rome, these unbelieving Jews, they began to be considered as enemies from the perspective of the Gentiles, rather than those who need to hear and respond to the love of Jesus. But here, Paul attempts to show that God still loves them. And he reminds these Gentiles that they too were once enemies of the gospel. Neither of them were worthy of salvation, but they only find themselves there receiving that gift because of the mercy of God in the first place. Now, mercy is one of those beautiful words that we often overlook. One of my favorite definitions of mercy is not getting what you deserve. And unfortunately, we're quick to believe that we deserve the best. If you were to ask a child what they deserve for Christmas, their mind is going straight for the list, the Toys R Us catalog, right? Rather than the lump of coal, which my children cover your ears, you deserve the coal. All of us deserve the coal, right? All of us deserve the consequences of our sin. Now hear me. This mindset has, has seeped into every facet of our society. We think that we deserve the nicest cars, the best vacations, the most satisfying relationships, the most rewarding careers, the most well-behaved kids. But hear me, whenever we get those things, or even small glimpses of them, it's not because we deserve them. It's because... Our God is gracious and merciful. Do you remember what we truly deserve? All of us. You and I deserve hell. The wages of sin is death. We have worked and earned our wages. We deserve to be under the wrath of God. We deserve to be enslaved by our sins. But we've received mercy. Let me challenge you to do something. Whenever you face trials and frustrations as they come, whether it's something small like getting stuck in traffic or something much bigger like a, a loss, let me challenge you to take a moment and remind yourself of two things. First, remind yourself of what you deserve. And second, remind yourself of the grace and the mercy that you've been given. Let's, let's think what that might look like in reality. Let's say that you have a, a hard day at vacation Bible school tomorrow. 
maybe you, you struggle with the kids or the snacks that AIM brings just aren't good enough. Uh, whatever it might be, you, you face a frustration. And in that frustration, especially when you feel the weight of it all, take a moment and remind yourself what you deserve. And as you think of what you deserve, the, the heaviness of that, remind yourself what you have already been given. Remind yourself of the joy of being able to come and gather together with brothers and sisters. Remind yourself that you get to share the good news of what Jesus has already done in your life so that others can hear and respond. Remind yourself that across the world, there are many situations worse off than what we face right now. Remind yourself of the grace that you've been given. As you consider the mercy of our Lord, it's like pulling out that magnifying glass and focusing on what is true and what magnifies God's glory. For the church in Rome, Paul was encouraging them to stop examining their, their own accomplishments or their own abilities and comparing them with everyone else, but instead to look at the Lord and at his mercy. Again, in, in verse 32, he says this truth that just forces us to look at him and away from ourselves. He says, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So for us and the church in Rome, we must have clarity about what we deserve and about the mercy that we've received in order to discover our true identity and the root of our salvation. And when we do so, we will see his glory magnified. And like that, that young child seeing his mom clearly for the first time, I hope that we, we celebrate the merciful God who sent his son to die for us on the cross. Third, and finally, let's pull out the telescope and we'll see God's glory magnified in his majesty. Now, in both the microscope and the magnifying glass, we've been looking at things that are around us that we can touch and experience in different ways. Now, we may not always be aware of it, but they are things around us that he's focusing our attention toward. This final point, we're still focusing our attention toward the Lord, but we're looking at what is not around us, but rather what is far outside of our reach. In particular, we're focusing on the aspects and the characteristics of the Lord that are so much bigger than what we have, so much bigger than what we can comprehend, what we can experience. In verses 33 through 36, Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 
Amen. Here, Paul erupts in worship. Not because he's figured out every nuance of God's plan, but because he's discovered that the fullness of wisdom and knowledge, it doesn't rest on his shoulders, but it's with the sovereign God. And when he realizes that, that the plan of salvation isn't Paul's or ours to determine, it's God's. That recognition leads him to praise. That this is something beyond what we can imagine, and yet we get to experience it. This hymn that Paul composes, it's all about how we are not on the same plane as God. And much like Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When we see ourselves and our many shortcomings standing up against the Lord in all of his majesty, the disparity between the two, it's staggering. Pastor Ken Graves shared an illustration several years ago that has forever been seared into my mind. He said, imagine you're, you're walking along the road in the heat of summer, and suddenly you're, you're hit by the unmistakable smell of rotting flesh. You look around, sniffing, trying to figure out where it's coming from, and you locate it. There's a casualty of the road, a possum. And you, you walk up to it, and you don't know why, but especially if you're a dude, you, you kick it, right? <laughs> and immediately it just it deflates, and that aroma starts wafting <laughs> But you, you look down and you see inside that possum, it looks like rice. But you know better, it's, it's not rice. It's maggots. And these I hope no one's having Mexican for lunch, I'm sorry. <laughs> these maggots, they're, they're squirming inside the, the body cavity, crawling through the eyes. Now... It sounds absurd, and it is, but can you imagine having compassion on those maggots? Like the, oh no, this, this isn't safe. They could be hit by a car and scooping them up and bringing them to safety. I mean, even if you're an animal lover, I, I guarantee you're not sitting at home at night with your pet maggot saying, oh, such a good maggot. No, it's, it's ridiculous. But imagine looking down at those maggots and hearing God say, you're going to become one of them. You're, you're going to go there in that and live among them. And they'll hate you for it. They'll, they'll call you names. They'll... They'll even nail you to a piece of wood and kill you. But knowing all of that, you're still going to 
identify yourself as one of them. You're going to call yourself the son of maggot. That's exactly what our Lord did. He left the majesty, the glory, and came and lived among us in all of our mess, all of our chaos. He called himself the son of man. And we killed him. But he did it all knowing that it would happen because of his deep love for us. The humiliation of it all. Now, the difference between a human and a maggot, it's massive, but it's measurable. The difference between God and man is immeasurable. We cannot put a number to it. It is infinite. Are you beginning to see the extent of his majesty? Are you beginning to understand how far beyond our conception God is? When we look through that telescope, we begin to recognize how majestic he is. And we begin to realize that all the praise that we can offer, though loved and cherished and accepted by the Father, it is far, far short of what he deserves. Paul erupted in worship, considering the vast distance between God and ourselves and how he crossed that distance for us. He is the name above all names, and yet he is Emmanuel, God with us. And when we look through the telescope and we gaze upon his majesty, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And friends, as as Paul sets his eyes on the Lord in all of his majesty, It led him to worship. You and I now have the opportunity to do the same. Now for the church in Rome and for you and me, God's glory is um, magnified as we consider him through these different lenses. We think upon the mystery of Jesus revealed across time. We think of the mercy that none of us deserve, but yet he's freely given. And we think about the majesty of the extent that he has come for each of us. And as we do so, we take our eyes off of ourselves, off of the comparisons and the the tensions, frustrations that we face, and we gaze upon him. 